0: Hi, I'm Laurie Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas.
1: And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond.
0: A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic.
1: All right, let's dive in.
0: The Women's Prize for Fiction announced their long list on March 10th. I love the Women's Prize as a woman. And also, it's always a really good quality list. So this year, for the 2021 prize, uh, in addition to Raven Leilani's Luster, also long listed is The Vanishing Half by Brit Bennett, Allie Smith's uh, conclusion to her seasonal series of books, Summer, what else is on there? Transcendent Kingdom by Yah Jazzy. And also, pretty cool, one of the authors that's going to be joining us in a few weeks, Claire Fuller's latest novel, Unsettled Ground, which I'm really excited to read because I loved her
1: previous book, Bitter Orange.
0: So Sam, this prize is pretty well known and pretty renowned in the UK, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, it's one of one of the biggest prizes over here. And it's one of the ones that makes a big difference. So if your book wins the prize, you're going to see a big sales boost. And there's going to be lots of press interest. And people are going to be reading it for a long time to come. So stakes are really high.
0: Yeah, I kind of went back and looked at some of the past winners because I was curious to see whether Ali Smith had won the prize before because she's written so many books at this point and she had one um in 2015 for her excellent book how to be both i love everything that ali smith writes so it's hard for me not to root for her again but last year 2020 the winner was hamnet so yeah i think it's it's a it's a good list of books and the the short list rather will be announced on april 28th so i look forward to seeing which books make the cut
1: it's going to be very interesting Uh, I should, uh, I should maybe admit here that I'm one of the the few people in the world, I think, that gave a negative review to uh, an Ali Smith book. (gasps) Which one? Sorry, Laurie. Which one? (laughs) It was, it was spring, I think. (laughs) I'm, I'm like, I've almost wiped it from my brain. I'm so, so embarrassed. Uh, the, the book before summer. Yeah. And her, her ongoing cycle of, of seasonal books. And it just seemed. We
0: we can debate. We we can um, we can do a whole episode on Allie Smith. In fact, I would love that. But but I have to say, Sam, you you've got to admire the project, right? That that seasonal quartet is amazing. I mean, she set out to write each book in in a six month period because she wanted to. She wanted each volume to be so topical and timely, and. I think it's just an amazing feat of stamina and I don't know imagination that she was able to put those books together each one consecutively in such a short period of time,
1: yeah, you're right. It's really impressive, and I know that an awful lot of people love them, and i'm I'm the exception. I always just hear really good stuff about her, and when I read interviews with her, I think she's great, so that's the only one I've read, so why don't we why don't we take it up in future? I'll read another one of her books with you a okay. we'll, uh,
0: I'm gonna persuade we'll you. Of how, I'm gonna persuade you of how great she is.
1: <laughs> All right, that sounds fine to me.
0: Well, we had some uh, sad news recently as well, Sam. The author of the children's favorite book, The Phantom Toolbooth, died this week.
1: Yes, he did. Norton Juster, he died on the 9th of March. So I I really want to say a quick uh, hail and farewell to him, because he was an author I loved when I was a a kid. I absolutely adored the the Phantom Tollbooth. And funnily enough, I read it again last year. Uh, I wrote a, a little piece about it for The Guardian, and it was fascinating revisiting it. And As an adult, I think I probably found it harder to understand than I did as a kid. In fact, because there are so many amazing leaps of illogic and his, the way the words bounce around on the page and can mean so many different things is, you know, bamboozling and fascinating. But of course, this is one of the things I, I loved as a a kid. And, you know, I could, I could go along with the. The craziness of the ideas more easily, I think, in some ways. But it's just brilliant, and it's it's joyful. And I think I said slightly facetiously in the article, it's a bit like reading James Joyce only without the boring bits, because there is that same—you know—things just jump out at you from the page, and these this fascinating, brilliant plays on words, and but the sound of words, everything is just, just, just so vibrant and and fun. Let me try and give you some examples of well, one of the, the really famous things especially among Dylanologists is, is the idea of the weatherman who is uh someone who's encountered early on in the, the phantom tool booth uh in fact maybe I should rewind a little bit to explain a bit about this book for the benefit of people who haven't read it is that
0: yeah I've I've never read it um I'm embarrassed to say so ah, yeah well
1: do tell. Oh, okay. Oh, well, you've, you've got the joy. You've got the joy in store. So it's about a boy called Milo, who, and this is one of the things I'm pretty sure I didn't understand when I was a kid because we don't actually have many toll booths in the UK, so ah. I don't even know if I knew what a toll booth was. But anyway, he drives his little car past a toll booth and it sends him off into a, a magical land where. Nothing makes sense in the conventional way, let's say. And uh, there's, for instance, there's there's a kingdom there of Dictionopolis where Milo is when he arrives, he's offered the hospitality of their kingdom, country, nation, state, commonwealth, realm, empire, Palatinate, principality. (laughs) You get the idea because, you know, it's Dictionopolis. And Milo, of course, has, do all these words mean the same thing? And the answer is certainly, precisely, exactly, yes. And so there's lots of things with that, where it's just playing around with the language. And the weatherman who I, I was getting to, uh, explains to Milo at one point, some people never go beyond expectations, but my job is to hurry them along there, whether they like it or not. And um, But he's the weatherman, not the weatherman, he explains to Milo, for after all, it's more important to know whether there will be weather than what the weather will be. And, <laughs> That's um, a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah, it's it's full of those. And uh, you know, there's the famous Bob Dylan line, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, which I like to suspect came from him reading The Phantom Tollbooth. And um, what else can I tell you about it? It's just full of, it's, so it's full of these beautiful plays on words, but also these lovely heartbreaking and sad and lovely little insights and moments. And well, let, let me give you his description of nourishing sounds. Street noises at night, train whistles a long way off, dry leaves burning, busy department stores, crunching toast, crinking bed springs, and of course, all kinds of laughter, which is just, you know, that's delightful. And the idea of those sounds being nourishing is so, so nice. So, uh, you know, even though I, I understood it better as a kid, maybe I'm not too old for that kind of thing.
0: No, who could be? Uh, that's that's just truly lovely. And what's what's maybe more amazing is that the the author was not a, a an author first and foremost. He was uh, a very well-respected architect here in the United States. And he actually taught architecture at Amherst, I believe, for a number of years. He was on the faculty there. So what a brilliant man and, and what a loss. Rest in peace. So another bit of spicy news, controversial nonetheless, is what's happening with six Dr. Seuss books. This has made so much news here because, of course, politicians have taken the opportunity to make political hay with it. But basically, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, who handles the rights and the publication of Dr. Seuss's books on behalf of his estate, decided to pull six of the titles because of their inappropriate representations of blacks and Asian people. And I'm wondering, Sam, how's this news kind of reached you guys in the UK?
1: Yeah, it has reached us here in the UK, and partly through that filter of the the outrage that has been stoked up over there in the US. And this, you know, we have very similar culture war things that become incredibly emotive. And people get or claim to be massively upset by this stuff. But I know, when there's so much heat has been spent on this issue, that I should probably have a stronger opinion about it. But I kind of think, you know, if the estate wants to drop that stuff, that's, that's up to them. It's fine. I don't see really what we, you know, what we, we lose from losing these particular books that they, they've taken out. It's not like we're losing the cat in the hat. I don't think they, they even sold particularly well the six titles that have gone I'm you know, sorry i just of thing-
0: wanted to I just wanted to note that they're selling really well now because <laughs> there's huge auctioning going on on eBay for these titles, as you would suspect
1: uh, yeah, so you know, and people are welcome to buy them if if they if they want to i guess i mean i don't i i take you know part as as a publisher and Essentially a liberal, I always worry about censorship and think, well, you know, maybe we should be showing this stuff to kids and kind of saying, yeah, things were different. And, you know, maybe you can learn from, you know, what people got wrong in the past. But in children's books, I just don't know. I don't think it ultimately. It doesn't matter that much that this stuff isn't there. And I don't really see what we gain from from having it. And also, it, it's been going on for an awful long time, this revision of of children's books. And it hasn't been such a problem in the past. Like Roald Dahl, for instance, he updated Charlie and the Chocolate Factory himself because he had these... The umpa lumpas were originally pretty crude stereotypes of pygmies. Right? I can't remember where they were supposed to be from. But, you know, he himself thought, yeah... I should change that and did. You know, Tintin in the Congo has been out of print for a long time. Over here in the UK, uh, we have a children's author called Enid Blyton, whose books contained quite a few really crude and horrible stereotypes. There was uh, a series of books called The Noddy Books. I don't no, know if you know I about don't. those over but, there in the US. But I'm not a, ever- a
0: big – not, not- – being a mother, I don't really keep up with the children's books very well.
1: Okay, well, fair enough. I mean, so the, you know, the Noddy Books had this, this character called the Gollywog, which was uh, a horrible stereotype of a black person. And that character was taken out. And some of the right-wing tabloid newspapers over here made a bit of fuss about it when it happened. But then since then, it doesn't matter. People still have books that aren't. Upsetting to people, and her her legacy has lived on. And you know, anyone that wants to find out about the stupid Golly One character can. So, it just seems to me like a lot of noise about something that is essentially—it's up to the estate.
0: Yeah, I don't know whether you're familiar with the um, the black actor Lavar Burton. One of the more famous things that he's done is reading Rainbow, which is a, a show that aired for a very long time, much beloved, but he was asked about this and his view was that he still honors and respects, you know, Dr. Seuss and as an author, but he thinks it was absolutely appropriate to take these books, you know, out of out of the mainstream because, you know, they they are dated and thank God today we have a little bit at least, what we want to believe is a better sensibility about some of these things, and so yeah, I think that um, it's just sad that a lot of conservatives here in the U.S. are are trying to make this as a a case of cancel culture and really politicizing it. When I think that you know it it's just it's just the natural kind of evolution of things, and I think I agree. I think the estate did the responsible thing.
1: Yeah, the estate did the right thing.
0: And that's it for the news. After the break, let's talk about Clara and the Sun. Okay, Sam, today we're going to be talking about Kazuo Ishiguro's latest novel that was released simultaneously in the UK and the United States called Clara and the Sun. This is a really interesting book and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it. But why don't you get us started and tell us what the book is about?
1: Okay, so I'm pausing already because explaining what the book is about is not not entirely straightforward. And the reason for that is that it's told from the point of view of Clara in the title, who, it quickly emerges, is not human. She is an AF, is the terminology in the book, which means an artificial friend. She's essentially... Uh, an AI, a kind of robot. And the world is presented to us from her perspective. So it starts out and she explains that she's in a store. Quite quickly come to realise she's one of the things that is for sale in the store. And she's there with other AFs who wait in the window sometimes and in, in other parts of the store for humans to come along and by them essentially and it seems to be children that are most interested in them and they're there to be companions for these children and eventually, a child called Josie comes along and after a bit of back and forth, she and her mother they they take Clara the a f back to their house and that sets the rest of the plot in motion um But an awful lot of what the book is about is actually about what Clara does and doesn't know and how she sees the world. So all of this information, I was almost going to say data, because it it comes to her in bits and drabs. There are some things she knows a lot about, some things she doesn't know at all.
0: I thought it was particularly clever that she does this thing with everyone she sees; that she kind of like sizes them up immediately. You, and you could almost like feel Ishiguru kind of telling us about a, a computer brain because she like says, "High class business person, approximately age forty eight point two years." You know, it's this kind of, in some ways, very computer speak, but. She's got some humane and human elements to her as well.
1: She's got some humane elements to her as well. I, yeah, she does, and it's a difficult voice that Ishiguro has has chosen to write it in because all the time, as a reader, we are questioning, you know, what is computer like? Shall we say, what is human? What is how is it that an AI would actually be thinking? And of course, this is this is one of the things that Ishiguro wants to press, and and as readers. Wants us to have this strange experience of trying to think what it would be like to be an artificial intelligence and to think about how an artificial intelligence understands the world and what it means, for instance, for an artificial intelligence to feel emotions. And I think that's, that's one of the things that is fascinating about the book, but very difficult as, as a reader. I think, in terms of the ideas it's great. And it really made me think, of you know, what is emotion? Like pretty fundamental questions. And what does it mean to to have an emotion? And, you know, when you see or see the world through Clara's eyes, and you're told that she feels shame, for instance, or, or she's worried about something, what does it actually mean that she's worried about, you know, this series of essentially ones and zeros, I imagine, although Ishiguro very cleverly doesn't go too deep into the the physics or or anything else of of how the the artificial intelligence is actually working so he leaves all that stuff vague while at the same time making his ask these questions and so if she is worried what 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 does that mean
0: yeah I think that that is interesting because we sense pretty early on that you know she's been manufactured to be a child's companion but she does have some at least type or ability to kind of, one would think, veer off of her mandate a a bit, so to speak. Because as you expressed, she has anxiety. And most of her anxiety is around Josie and how to take care of Josie. And at this point, it's probably important to point out that Josie is a child that has a very discernible limp. She's got a, a physical handicap. And we learn Probably about a third of the way through the book, if I'm recalling correctly, that this physical impairment has something to do with a gene editing procedure, something that she and many other kids have had. And while it doesn't seem to have affected some children like it has Josie, we also know that Josie did have an older sister who died of the after effects of gene editing. But Clara is very much wants to, feels that she needs to save Josie's life or to kind of help Josie above and beyond just, you know, making sure that she's doing her homework and getting her meals and being a playmate to her. She's got some agency. She's she's trying to help figure out a way for for Josie to to get well. And while the way she thinks about it is in some senses quite humorous the way Ishiguro sets it up and it's not rational you know it it does it does really give you this question uh in your mind about you know well where is the line between human and machine and can machines now or sometime in the in the real near future uh have some form of empathy
1: and this is where the son of the title comes in i think we should explain that the way that Clara thinks she can help Josie is by doing almost a religious rite with the sun and ask the sun to help Josie. And it's it's very strange. And Ishiguro, he lays the groundwork because he explains early on that the, the AFs, they rely on the sun for nourishment, as Clara calls it. And they're, they're obviously solar powered in some way. And so Clara seems to make the assumption that everyone in the world is somehow reliant on the sun in a similar way to her and makes all these odd connections that eventually send her off trying to perform various rites to to make Clara better through the sun's beneficence and it's one of the it's this is where the book is is strange and tricky for me I mean I I like these ideas. So yeah, she's she's carrying out these these strange rituals and it's it's all it's all fascinating. It's all really interesting. But I did I, I do have a slightly worried voice at the back of my mind and partly this I, I imagine is one of the side effects of being a, an editor myself and, and always trying to smooth out inconsistencies and plot holes in, in books and in Clara and the Sun there are deliberate inconsistencies because the way Clara understands the world isn't straightforward and there are some things she's been exposed to and knows about and some things she doesn't and she learns things at different speeds which is all very interesting but at the same time she seems to maintain this belief in the Sun as a kind of beneficent deity almost throughout the book but there are many more things that she she understands quickly and in a in a more shall we call it rational way or you know a more scientific and straightforward way she so for instance she knows what a fridge is and what it does but she doesn't know what a barn is and she can help the kids so there's another boy in the story called Ricky who's Josie's friend and who hasn't had this gene editing theory but does have a chance of going to a good um school and it becomes a plot point that Clara will be able to help him with his homework because she understands lots of these things and you're kind of thinking she understands how to do this quite complicated homework but she doesn't understand about the sun even though the sun is one of the main things that you know powers her and keeps her world turning And she also doesn't understand about Josie's illness, even though she is an artificial friend. And presumably, if you're an artificial friend manufacturer, I was thinking, wouldn't you at least program them so that they understand children and their ailments and some of that medicine, because that's where they're going to be most useful, especially in this world where a lot of children seem to be getting sick. And sometimes... She'll struggle to name and see things clearly. And sometimes she's on top of really complicated visual ideas, like at one point she describes a silhouette. And I know that these inconsistencies are there deliberately in some ways, because Ishiguro wants us to be asking these very questions. But at the same time, as a reader, I did have that nagging, nah, Kind of, I just didn't.
0: Yeah, I I get you. I think that um, I I feel this tension that you, that you're explaining that Ishiguru in some ways wants wants Clara to to think like a human, and in other points he's trying to very much point out to us in the ways that she that her mind doesn't work like a human. And and one of the things that he keeps he comes back to again and again. It's 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 a relatively minor detail it turns out i thought perhaps maybe it would be a bigger part of the plot but there are there are these times throughout the book where clara sees something like a room the room in josie's house the 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 main living room i i think she calls it the open plan um and it's it becomes very segmented to her the the, the layout of the room and she can like it's almost like she like she's seeing it in like a grid and that kind of image of her seeing things partially and cut up comes back again and again. And so, yeah, it's, it is confounding in a way, but I think you're right. I think it's, it's intentionally so, but one of the things that I thought about the book that I thought was, was less successful than it might have been is there's a somewhat sinister character in the book who's a friend of Josie's mother. It turns out that they have in secret been doing a quote-unquote portrait of Josie. And Clara goes with Josie and the mother and the father as well, who's estranged from the mother, to this guy's home to take Josie's portrait. And I don't want to give away too much of what they find there, but... I I didn't really, that character really didn't uh, come alive to me and he didn't feel real. And I guess I didn't feel if I was supposed to feel some kind of, of fear or horror or something about him. I I didn't. What do you think?
1: I think, yeah, possibly I agree with you. I think uh, on this, as on on most things in the novel, Ishiguro has got to get out because he's presenting it from the, the point of view of Clara. So Clara doesn't feel fear in the way that a human does she feels kind of i suppose a kind of bafflement and she's not quite understanding what's going on uh, but she doesn't see threat in this in the same way, so maybe you could say that this is why the narrative is like this, and he gets away with without this feeling as as tense as it might and i don't I don't know i mean it's, it's really interesting and, and this setup allows Ishiguru to, to explore some some really fascinating questions uh, as well as the, the fundamental questions about what it is to be human and what it is to have these emotions. he starts asking about what it is to to love and and what it is that you you love in someone and is it possible to to love? Uh, an artificial friend like Clara, for instance, in the same way as you can you can love your daughter and the characters themselves, they are they, they start asking this question. It's really interesting that the way it, it plays out. I mean there's a a fundamental quote which I don't think it's it's too much of a problem to to read this out because it's it's on the cover of my UK favourite edition. Uh, this does come quite late, but the father He ends up asking, do you believe in the human heart? I don't simply mean the organ, obviously. I'm speaking in the poetic sense, the human heart. Do you think there is such a thing, something that makes each of us special and individual? And if we just suppose that there is, then don't you think in order to truly... oh Actually, (laughs) I think I I will cut it short here because there's going to be a big, big spoiler. But it's about... Can, the question becomes, can you essentially imagine if there was an artificial continuation of someone, if, if say, I uploaded everything about myself to a computer and, it, and an artificial intelligence was able to look like me and take all that information and react exactly as I would in the world, to, to every kind of stimulus and to have the same, apparently the same emotions so that if someone were talking to me, they would think that they were, well, I said it then, if someone were talking to me, they would think that they were talking to me, not this this recreation of me. And the question becomes, what is it that people are responding to? What is it that they love? Would someone who had loved me in the past, would they be able to continue loving this artificial version of me? And if that were impossible, why? Why would they not? What is it about me that that they're loving if it's not the way I respond in the world? Is there some kind of ghost in the machine that they're, they're responding to? And does that even make sense? And these are, are fascinating questions. And I really like the way Ishiguro poses them and and you know he really made me think about these questions except i don't know about about you laurie but on an emotional level again i was just going nah you know i you know i i have i'm trying to picture loving a recreation of someone i already love and it just seems like you just just wouldn't and i know i i can't give the rationale for that and again perhaps this is the point that ishiguru is making is that you can't you can't rationalize these things and you're you're going to respond like that anyway. But it's
0: to me, that that was kind of the thing that I think uh, one of the, the themes of the book that kind of stays with you and you keep thinking about after you finish reading it is this kind of premise that at the very end of the book, there's kind of a, a very cinematic scene where Claire is about to, I guess, expire, you would say, and she's in a junkyard. And you know she's thinking about things, and she she comes to the conclusion that what makes a human really individual and unable to be duplicated or manufactured is not anything about the individual but about the way that the people that love the individual think about that person and It comes back to a theme that Ishiguru kind of explores in one of my favorite books by him, and I think in my mind, a better book, Never Let Me Go, where you might recall that the kids there are are clones and they're being used for organ donation or donation in quotes, (laughs) organ harvesting. And there's this big thing about the kids, the kids make art. And why was it important at the school that they were in to like create this art, and it was kind of i think to show or or try to exhibit that they were they were more than just utilitarian they they were they were human they had feelings they had they had souls they weren't they were something other than just a machine to serve certain purposes but the thing that i i guess i it just felt very false to me was the relationship between in in Clara and the son the the dialogue between the adults i just it, you know at some points i just like laughed out loud and you know made made notes in my margins like groan and wtf because <laughs> to me like the the way that the uh, ricky's mother and josie's mother and josie's father kind of interacted and spoke to one another it just felt so inauthentic to me
1: yeah yeah i i share that and i i have i have one of my notes is who speaks like this about his daughter <laughs> like who no no one and it just i and yes that's partly Ishiguru is pushing that he wants us to think that this is strange and you know he's testing our own reactions to the the odd way the the adults react I and mean, he's making a point about how you know human beings are even more unfathomable and strange than Clara this af who we we never feel we properly understand deliberately so throughout the narrative but i i agree with you that you know while these ideas are really interesting while while you're actually reading i just quite often ended up shrugging and not not believing enough and thinking this isn't happening the the suspension of disbelief was a real problem
0: yeah there are there are like totally cringeworthy um scenes that, uh, there one in particular comes to mind so there's this old boyfriend of ricky's mom and ricky hasn't been gene edited But this old boyfriend is on the board of trustees of this very good school that, you know, I think they take, according to the book, like 2% of the student population is unedited or they call it not lifted. So Ricky has got a really slim, slim chance of getting into the school, but they arrange a meeting with this man and this guy <laughs> t- talks and acts like just, it was preposterous to me. I mean, I just, it was, I, I I couldn't believe that someone that could write remains of the day, which is like, which is just so brilliant. And again, highlights problems with communication, but that's kind of a, it, that communication the problems with communicating felt so much more authentic and human to me than than this.
1: Yeah, I I think I tend to agree. I do want to defend Ishiguro slightly because his prose in spite of the fact that I didn't buy the dialogue, it is lovely and it's so smooth and the book is it's a pleasure to read even even in spite of the the problems we've been pointing out. And you know, there are there are really clever bits of writing in it so for instance there's a party scene where there are loads and loads of people speaking at once and i know this is a, a minor thing but technically to pull that off getting all those different voices coming in at different times and having it feel entirely natural and you know you can hear the babble in your head it, it's really well done i mean he's a, he's a wonderful wonderful writer and this it i don't think it's one of his better books you know, as you say compared to the the remains of the day it doesn't have that emotional heft and it's not as convincing. And Or compared to, you know, one of his more difficult books, like The Unconsoled, for instance, which has been brilliantly described uh, like like watching a football match without being able to see the ball because it's so... Yes, it's so, <laughs> a
0: confounding book for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah, but confounding and and quite brilliant. You know, Cl- Clara, it's not on, on that kind of level i don't think but uh, i don't regret reading it and i know find the ideas fascinating and there were some some lovely images in fact this is this is one thing we haven't talked about is that it's really he he's really vague about certain things that clara presumably doesn't know about or just isn't interested in for instance where the book is set is, is never made clear not not even which country uh, but the, there are really beautiful descriptions of the the immediate surroundings of the house that um, Clara ends up in, and the fields around there. All of these things are, are really lovely to read. Great descriptions of the sun, as you'd hope, with a book like with that title. Yeah.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I, I thought it was brilliant the way the first. I would say the first. I don't know. Fifty pages are maybe the maybe a little less than that, but it's Clara in the store before Josie takes her home. And just so brilliant the way that he describes how Clara's uh, view of the world, even though she can move around, but when she's in the store, she's on display. So she's supposed to stand in one spot or sit in one spot. And the way that, that where she was on any particular day The view that she had of the outside world through the glass window of the street outside, and then of the way that the sun moved between the buildings, and when she would catch the sun, and when she would be in shade. And you almost, I almost felt like Ishiguru, like rented a storefront. You know, on a busy Manhattan street, and just like spent um, a month there, just like moving around different spots and like watching what it looked like outside and where the sun was and and what time of day it was it was most bright. It was was really really beautiful. Yeah, it's in so many ways. It's such an accomplished book, but for me, I just couldn't. I just couldn't get over the. The clunky dialogue. I will say though that I think that man, this guy's got an imagination, right? You look at you look at his body of work and all the many types of stories that he's he's written, and in in types of different different genres. And then you look at at this, and even even if you're just looking at this story, I mean, how he comes up with some of these ideas. We didn't really get into it, but. Clara, in her kind of non-contextual mind, thinks that she thinks that there's this machine that causes pollution. She calls it the Cootings machine because she's seen Cootings uh, uh, on the side of it, and it's I can't. I think it might be one of those machines that like tar[s] the road or something. But she sees it outside her window, and it it comes up with big plumes of black smoke, black sooty smoke. And it blocks out the sun, so she instantly kind of like she as though, in the same manner that she feels that the sun can save Josie because it nourishes her, she thinks that the Cooting's machine needs to be destroyed because it blocks out the sun, and doing so will help make Jody well again. so I mean, to think that up is just it's it's ingenious,
1: yeah. I like that stuff. And it's it's fun. You know, he's a writer in his 60s who's had this incredible career and he's still pushing things. He's still going, okay, lots of the themes are similar to to themes in his other books. And this idea of, you know, how you relate to people is obviously a big Ishiguro theme. And the idea of, of obsolescence, you know, of Clara becoming useless in a way is, is something that keeps recurring throughout his books, but he's still trying to write from the point of view of an artificial inte- intelligence, for instance, is hugely ambitious. And yeah, yes, it's been done before and it's been done in, in lots of hard SF and maybe in ways that are more convincing because perhaps because they they have grappled more closely with what it actually really means to be a functioning artificial intelligence, they've got a, a stronger platform than Ishiguro in some ways but you know i still i'm still glad he's he's going for these these difficult ideas and if the book doesn't quite succeed at least it's a an ambitious failure and i don't know i don't i don't even know if i'd call it a failure it's not it's not a perfect book but it's interesting which is uh, which is something huh
0: yeah i i wouldn't call it a failure at all. I think that he's a a victim of his own success in some ways because the expectation level for a new book by him is so extremely high <laughs> <laughs> um that it's almost it's unfair in some ways to be, you know, picking out these criticisms. It is definitely a worthwhile book to read and I hope our listeners out there will will give it a try and Sam, I think that's all our time for today but it's been Great fun talking about Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro with you.
1: Yes. Yes. It's been, what a fascinating author.
0: (laughs) Talk to you soon.